This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Next month, Sacred Reich will release their first new album in 23 years, Awakening, via Metal Blade Records. Awakening is a timeless collection comprised of blistering thrash, crushing grooves, killer solos, and socially conscious lyrics that demonstrate a true understanding of everything that matters most in the world today. It also features the return of Dave McLean, who managed a drum throne from 91 to 97, and the addition of 22-year-old Joey Radsville playing guitar alongside original member guitarist Willie Arnett and vocalist bassist Phil Rind are integral facets of the record. Pre-order your copy now at MetalBlade.com slash Sacred Reich. One more time, the new album by Sacred Reich, Awakening. Go to MetalBlade.com slash Sacred Reich today. This show is sponsored by Rockabilia. Need to stock up on some of your favorite band's merch? Go to Rockabilia.com and put some on your wish list. They're the one-stop shop for all your band merch needs. Need to buy a gift for someone and know what bands they're into? Pick up something from Rockabilia. You won't be disappointed with the selection, and you can get 10% off with the code PCJabberJaw. So head on over to rockabilia.com and use the promo code PCJabberJaw and save 10% today. It's the Metal Sucks Podcast with your hosts, Petter Spych, Brandon Hahn, and Jocelyn Sharp. Metal Sucks Podcast. Hello, friends out there. It is I, your host, Petter Spych. I am always joined by... Listen up, you scallywag. My name is Brandon Hahn, and you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mr. Hahn Comedy. And speaking of comedy, Jocelyn Sharp will not be with us today. She is out there doing comedy, making people laugh, and make sure you follow her at Jocelyn Sharp, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to contact me, guys, at Rise to Offend on Facebook and Twitter, Rise to Offend official on instagram this week i can say it my favorite interview i've done so far this year in 2019 belongs to alexis mincola from three teeth guys i'm so excited about this new record metal war it's excellent it's one of those industrial metal records that you, i just fucking needed and so hang in there make sure you guys don't miss this interview and catch those tracks but before we jump into that interview Let's talk a little bit about the Metal Sucks news. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing, there was an anniversary. They did a whole article. I hope everybody gets to MetalSucks.net and reads Axel's article that he wrote about the disaster pieces, the Slipknot retrospective about their debut record, which came out 20 years ago today. We were very much into when Slipknot rose. We were youngins oh, yeah. back then. So we were, we were of the teenagers. If I may, it happened at a time when metal and rock were king. So to me, a lot of stuff, there's, it's a lot more competitive when you're on top of the game and there's more, more to go. But a lot of great records obviously came out of there. Slipknot's first record, to me, has some untouchably great, amazing songs. But overall, as a record, it never stuck with me as like the other records they put out. Now, what about you? Okay, when I first heard Slipknot, I heard Wait and Bleed on the radio, and I was like, okay, all right. Now, I didn't fall in love with it, but then uh, I was over at my buddy's house, like, you heard Slipknot? And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, I heard that one song on the radio, and uh, he put it in. It was like track number one right off the bat. It was so hard. And and Axel does point that out, that the record is very top-heavy. I completely agree with the first five or six songs on that record is 
you pay attention and they're excellent songs all of it but i feel i'm talking about the overall encompassing of the record i do feel it slid kind of down downhill after like the fifth or sixth song i think that they've made records since then that don't really have that kind of I'll say their last record was better, you know? Well, yeah, I think... You know, I think The Great Chapter, I think that record is a much more complete record. But then again, you had nine guys trying to keep it together, and they were putting out a new song. I think they were just trying to figure out what they were as a band with that first album. I also feel gimmicks, when they're dangerous in metal and rock, they work so well. And the, and the gimmick of the psychotic clowns and stuff like that... that and Sid doing 20-foot stage dives... And I, I was going to bring that up is that well, I remember when I first saw Slipknot, it was at a house, house of Blues. And I remember when we, when we interviewed uh, Clown back in the day, I brought that up to him. I was like, it was you guys, one minute silence and Mudvayne, right? And it was a House of Blues and there was maybe, you know, 2,000 seat place. It wasn't sold out. But dude, the stage diving that those guys were doing, the members, the show was absolute chaos. And it was a special thing to see them in such a small venue at the time. And the record was I don't know, just released. So it wasn't too far into the game. But I remember like the next time I saw them on that record, it was a, a much bigger venue out here. But then specifically, I remember seeing them when Iowa came out and it was an arena. So yeah. that record catapulted them in, in the span of two years where they were doing arena shows, you know. And when I think about one of the arena shows I saw Slipknot in, I want to say in 2001, it was like... Slipknot, System of a Down, Mudvayne, Rammstein. It was like all these bands that were like competing with each other. Who's going to steal the fucking show? You know, it was a, a massive kind of tour of all these bands in their primes to me. Because I think Iowa was a step up on this record. I, I, I do prefer that to the the debut. Now I have nothing. Like I said, the debut is a it classic. It's amazing. I'm not saying anything bad. But when I saw them do Iowa, I saw System of a Down do Toxicity. You know, Rammstein was at the time doing, oh, what was it? It wasn't Mudder, was it? It might have been Mudder. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Um, but anyways, the point is, is um, they were all competing. Like, and they all had crazy stage shows and, and different things happening. With Slipknot, it was just flat out chaos what are these guys willing to do? it was like watching ecw you know dude in, in in the first tours if anybody saw them out there it was like watching professional wrestlers it was complete chaos they would jump on your head i remember like the electrical tape would be stuck on all these people like they had around their wrists they would give it out to people it was sheer chaos but the audience was like a, a professional wrestling thing they were jumping on each other you know it was there wasn't a band that i saw be more dangerous and ignite in my like teen years more that's what than i'm getting Slipknot, at ever it just seemed like when the first record came out slipknot was young and they just wanted to show everyone that we're far more extreme than the next guy mm -hmm. and then the second record came out iowa mm -hmm. and now they're songwriters now they're artists it felt like that i did and then their third record which i think is also better than the the first two from my perspective but the songwriting really shows they got it, and then it was almost like you know. just like you said. It didn't. In the first record, it was just like a bunch of guys just going absolute berserk, and they didn't know what their role was. And then by the second album, everybody kind of knew who to go to, who's going to write the songs, who's going to do. The best way to describe it to me is that uh, the first Slipknot record is like Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power, and then the second one's like Far Beyond Driven, Iowa. Like it's just like we're just going to be the hardest record we can write and not compromise whatsoever and see what comes out of it. And that's how I always compared the two. Because I had the same feeling when Far Beyond Driven came out that I had when Iowa came out, you know? 
It came out on my 21st birthday, too. I, ah, that's something I'll always remember. Look at you. 21st kangaroo. birthday. I remember I, I picked it up, and I was like, that was like the first record speaking of, I can legally drink to. It's so funny, because speaking of extreme wrestling and all that shit, it mm. was like 20 years ago. Uh, Mankind. On, Mankind got thrown off the hell in the cell. So it was like, again, that's what people were watching. They yeah. were just watching sheer danger on television. Yeah. You know, Football was far more violent than it was now. I mean, it's insane, dude. That's all. It just seemed like that's what the American public wanted. They just just wanted blood. They want the blood was a commodity, it. yeah. And that was and that was right around the time that UFC started to get it's picking up steam and like that's when Ken Shamrock and Hoist Gracie and all that. That's when they were. It was like that's all we wanted at that time. And that I guess that environment made rock and metal fit better. Maybe? Yes, it, it let, did. It let people be a little more. And there was a lot of horrible bands that came out of that new metal era. But I also feel like the bands that we listened to. The arena bands, there's a few, obviously, that are not who we're talking about. But I, I don't think the arena bands of this era are really great bands or have, like, classic, classic records. And I'm not going to say their names or say anything great, but of certain eras, there's untouchable records. I think Slipknot has one of those. I, again, I don't want to say anything bad about the record. I'm talking about listening. I listened to it on the way up here today. And I was like, all right, it's not as... The, the songs that are the hits are fucking amazing, but there's a lot of songs in there that were filler. As of in 2019, when I listened to it, and keep in mind, I haven't listened to it. Yeah, God, I can't tell you. Damn near 40 year old man. I can't tell you. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, damn near 40. I haven't listened to it in probably five, six years strong. I think the last time I listened to it is when the Gray Chapter came out. I kind of revisited it, but fantastic band, important band to our scene. And um, if you guys haven't revisited it, let us know what you think about Slipknot's debut record today in 2019 if you still think it holds up, or maybe there's some filler on there, or maybe, you know, I just. Like I said, it's an old record, and I've listened to it so many times, and maybe I, I just don't have that same connection. Email us at rise to a fan at gmail.com. Next story, a sad anniversary uh, for us all. It's, I just can't believe, but Vinnie Paul, his passing was a year ago, June 22nd. I mean, I tell you, it feels like yesterday. It's We always bring it up because, as everybody out there knows, Vinny, his second home was here in Las Vegas, where we're at. And uh, we would he see was him such everywhere. a huge part of the community and such a great guy to all of us. And uh, It just feels like yesterday he was, uh, you know, I was just having a shot with him, just I hanging can't out. Believe it's insane, dude. It's like, that's I, what I, it it's, feels it's like. It's very hard yeah. to, I, I, it's crazy how quickly time flies. You know, it, yeah. isn't it weird? Like, a minute seems way longer than a minute, but when you, Fast forward a year from now, a year seems like a minute. Well, because, I, I mean, we talk about it all the time. We're all overwhelmed, and we have these computers in our hands, bro. Life's not slow. It's so fast. Think about all the information we can get by sitting with a phone in our hand in 10 minutes, opposed to 15 years ago. Yeah, not a lot of time to reflect. All that information just, and we want it, you know? We want it, but that's what's going to make time sail by, because I learned 50 things in 30 minutes sometimes, you know? And it's like, what'd you do? I learned all this shit. Yeah. And then I regurgitate it, and I play telephone, and I say it wrong to people, and then they say it wrong to people, and then it's all just misinformation. Right. I start that shit, too. <laughs> Pete's part of the media. So you forget about... You know, the last, last year, well, all I did was listen to Pantera and, and the Hell Yeah records that I own and all that stuff. It was just this whole celebration, you know. I pulled out the, the Rebel Meets Rebel album I haven't heard in a long time. And it's like, hey, you know what? I, I'm going to do that again, man. Well, just that's revisit the, sad. the Revisit those uh I think the, the saddest records, part yeah. about Vinny leaving wasn't just the music. It was just the person because everybody, even Dave Grohl. He goes, you know why we're such nice guys? Pantera. Yeah. He goes, Dimebag, Dimebag and Vinny, they brought us back 
stage and we just started hanging out. And he goes, and he goes, there was one time that they were hanging out backstage and Britney Spears was back there. Like, how the fuck are you back here? But she was still hanging with Pantera because those guys were so fun and so nice and so generous to everybody. And that's how Vinny was. Vinny's whole goal was he wanted everyone to have a good time. Usually with people of our budget, mm-hmm. if, we have, if, we, if we're like that guy, we want everybody to have a good time, we go broke. Well, Vinny had money, yeah. and he made sure that everybody had a drink in their hand, everybody was smiling, everybody was laughing. I just want to convey that to the metal community, just how much of an amazing human being he was. And, and then on top of that, how much of an amazing drummer he was. I mean, it's like the human being part comes first, and then... Fuck, I forgot about how amazing you were and how hard you hit those skins. Like, especially if you were live and in person and you saw Vinny hit and you heard Vinny hit, your your whole chest shook. Yeah. You know, he never, and, he never made mistakes and you know they were drunk, man. Even even exactly, even when Phil and Selmo, even when he had a even when they had the big falling out, he flat out said he goes, Vinny Paul was better than a drum machine. He had the timing more down pat than a fucking robot. Speaking of that, how do you feel about that? Because I don't think we ever discussed this on the show. Because I know we don't we don't really discuss a lot of that stuff. But you know, Phil's been doing the Pantera songs with his uh, his band, The Illegals, kind of as a tribute to Vinny and Dime, in a way. And um, I don't know. How do you feel about him doing that? Should he not play Pantera songs anymore? Because those guys and they never really had the thing. Or do you think it's like it's it's good for the fans to see him do it? What do I you think, think it's good for the fans, and I think Phil knows damn well that you know. Hey, look, The Illegals. They're a good band, but he knows that they're not Dime and Vinny. And I just think that's a way for him to pay tribute. I'm sure, you know, now that he's sober, I'm sure that he looks back on his life and he has so many regrets. And there's not enough. And no matter no matter what, uh, just like when we were doing our podcast on Rise to Offend, there's a part where we brought down a uh, a 12 step program Mm -hmm. where you got to apologize to everybody that you've ever done wrong. I'm sure he's tried to apologize, but I don't think he was able to give the apology that he felt they deserved. So in a way, I do think that this is a tribute. If he wanted to, he could sit there and record the Pantera songs with the illegals. But no, he's not trying to make money off that. I think it's I think it's part please the fans, give the fans what they want. But I also think that he knows damn well that there was magic. Even Vinny, one of the conversations that I had with him, he goes, granted, you know, we were all crazy and, you know, Phil was a disaster. And he goes, but we made magic. We made magic. The four of us, we made magic. And in a way that is a tribute to him. I hope he, and I hope Phil continues to do that. And I hope he does say, give this up for Dimebag and Phil. And I do believe he means it. I don't think it's pandering to the crowd. I don't think it's one of those things where goods give it up for the troops just to get that fake applause going. Like I really do believe he means it. I agree, man. I actually, I, I do. I got to see him do the songs and with the band, and they don't sound as tight or anything like that. Because you said it's it's irreplaceable, you know, and it's in a smaller venue. But the fact is, is that it's just a moment where everybody sings together and everybody's happy. And I'm glad that he decided to make that move. Um, I don't think it's for money. I think it's for us, the fans, and a tribute. And trust me, he said it every time I've seen him. Exactly like you said, like this is for those guys and all that stuff. And us as fans, we we should appreciate that, you know. On the flip side, when you look at something, and I don't want to talk any nonsense or shit, but when you look at the Static X thing going on right now, there's a lot of feelings about that. There's a story this week about having a uh, Wayne Static on Twitter making a lot of jokes, the ghost of Wayne Static about their reunion being kind of a cash grab. But there is a second side of that where 
you know, there Wayne Static and Tony Campos hated each other before he passed away. This is documented and all that stuff. But just like Vinny and Phil, but there is a tribute to those songs. There is something to, to say in a positive light from, you know, time going by to share those songs that were created. So I, I don't like the Static X thing fully. You know, that's just my biased opinion about my nonsense because I don't think it would have been... I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to say because I, I do support Phil doing the Pantera songs. But so maybe my uh, opinion changed. Maybe maybe I do support the Static X thing as well as a tribute because you know what? If people have seen the show. It, it's straight up tribute. Well, straight I'm sure tribute, with you know? with with Tony and and Wayne. Yeah, there was a falling out. Yeah, a lot of that had to do with the same thing that took Wayne from us. Mm-hmm. And when that stuff gets involved in your life, it can put a huge dent into friendships and the working relationships. It, There's no not, one more selfish than an addict. bro. Exactly. There's no one more selfish or um, damaging than an addict because they never see where they're going wrong. No, they never see where they're going wrong. No. And with Tony, I'm sure he probably looks back on this and he goes, there was a time when, again, we made magic. There was a time when me and Wayne were on such an, a unique level of creativity of respect and maybe this is a way for him to kind of recapture that for himself i mean i do believe that yes there is a cash grab going on but i also think he needs to do this for himself i do think that he wants to feel that energy once again and he knows it's not going to be the same but at least it'll be somewhat like he used to have yeah and i mean for the fans and it helps the healing too yeah yeah absolutely you don't think that he doesn't feel bad that wayne died you don't think that there isn't some level of guilt when he was like you know what fuck you you don't think there isn't that for the people for the people that don't understand that dude you'll never be able to get that back you'll never be able to get that back i know i know there's people out there uh you know like let's just say they had a good close relationship and uh, but then it, there's a huge, massive falling out where they're in the news. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. But then when one of those people dies unexpectedly, the memories you have, they weren't the most recent memories. They were the ones from the past. They were the ones where you're not thinking about all the times that you fought and the times that you said F you and the times I, you know, you hated each other. You're thinking about all the laughs that you had. You're thinking about the beautiful music that you made. You're thinking about the memories that you made. You're not, it's, it's one of those things, man. It's like until you're in that situation, you don't know what it's like. Grudges die when tragedy occurs. Yes. It's very true for most people. And and so, yeah, in a lot of ways, man, um, on this anniversary of Vinnie Paul's death, you know, we here, we support everybody getting out there, cover bands, whatever, playing those songs and uh, doing it for the fans. That's really cool. And Phil, obviously, the voice of Pantera. I'm not calling him a cover band, but um, him doing that for those guys. I think it's cool. And, you know, unfortunately, it never happened in real time. But like you said, the magic is still there. So... With that, my friends, let's jump into our interview with Alexis of Three Teeth. Everybody, what's going on? It's Petter with the Metal Sucks Podcast. On the phone, I got Alexis from Three Teeth. We are here to talk about the new record, Metal War, which is coming out July 5th. Now, there's no way, I'm sure you talked about this in every interview, but there's no way that we're not going to bring up the the first single, the video that you guys just put out for Exit. Let's talk about the concept, the idea. For people who haven't seen it, we can give them a rundown after. Yeah, yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, that, that, that video, was, uh, it was a challenging one to get made for part of the reason that 
you know, we, we signed to a label now, and, you know, I don't know if anyone's familiar how much of a challenge it can be dealing with insurance and all the stuff that labels just don't want to get sued for when making the video, which was all very new to us. So, you know, when they had to approve the treatment, I had to omit certain things that would have clearly freaked them out, and insurance would have definitely not covered because when you're doing, like, a 24-point hook suspension, um, that's not something insurance companies understand or are willing to cover. Um, so I, I essentially just lied. I just kind of said, like, you know, left that part out. And then when, uh, you know, some people from the label decided to show up to the shoot and saw what they were doing, I was like, you guys should just leave. Like, let's just pretend you were never here. You know, this never happened. And, you know, when you see it in the video, it turns into one of those things like, wow, is that visual effects or is that real? And, you know, no one really knows at that point. But, yeah, the truth of the matter is we we did like a 24-point hook suspension, which, you know, I'm not I'm not big into that culture um, or anything to the point where, you know, a 24-point hook suspension is a challenge for people who even do that. Um, so there was a lot of inherent risk involved. And, you know, we were sort of in a, a dingy warehouse downtown LA that, you know, for us to have to, uh, you know, make sure that was safe and to sterilize everything. It was a challenge, you know, but it, the final product was awesome, you know, and the label loved it. And, you know, sometimes I think it's better to, to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. And that was one of those perfect cases because if I ask for permission, that video doesn't get made. So. Dude, I agree with you. And now it, there is a, a huge difference from a, a, a watching it on a screen like I did and being in the actual yeah. room when you're seeing the hooks like enter you know, the person's body and all that stuff. So you yeah. were there when you were seeing it. So every hook... Yeah, and we had a lot of people on set. And it was funny because, like, you know, it's a true testament to Janelle, who was a suspension artist, that, you know, her... I remember I just walking up to her and being like, Janelle, you okay? Like... Just, you know, making sure everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. And she said, are you kidding? I fucking love this. She's like, it's better than heroin. And at that point, everyone was like, all right, I think she's okay. You know, like, she's like, they're like, this is foreplay for me, this part. Like, it wasn't until, like, we actually suspended her. But the hooking, you know, that, it was, that was, it took a while, too, because you, you can't rush those things. And you have to wait for the skin to warm up before you bring it up. So it's like, you know, you're stretching it at certain stages and like there was a lot of cringe going on like a lot of people could not look at it um and it was pounding and there was a big pool of blood at the bottom of the table and you know i was just so impressed by the strength and the durability of the human flesh like that's what blew my mind um you know she did one through her forehead which you know was even crazy because she was like i don't normally do this either and we had one through the throat and it was just insane. Like everyone was just in constant awe of what she could put herself through. Um, you know, and like, you know, at one point you think like, you know, okay, Jesus was up on the cross with a four point suspension. This girl was laughing at a 24 point suspension. So, you know, at some point you really have to just tip your hat to her as just a true badass, you know? Um, and I just got to pick her brain a lot about why she does it you know, some of the motivations and, you know, you learn that there's a lot more to it than just sort of like, you know, gore and freak out culture. There's a lot of sort of uh, inherent interesting psychology behind that type of behavior. And it's sort of when we were coming up with the concept, that stuff had sort of aligned with the greater meaning of the song. So in our mind, it was like, Hey, we should try this video concept. Cause it seems like, you know, uh, seems like it'll turn some heads and we could make something pretty cool and, and, 
you know, there, there's so few territories to transgress at this point, and I'm not even sure this does transgress anything because at this point we're so desensitized in terms of what shock value is. But, you know, for us it was like, I haven't seen it in the video. It looks good, you know. So uh, it all came together. It was cool. You know, we had a blast doing it. And self-destruction, like you were talking about, it seems to be more part of the norm of our culture, or it has been underlining for a long time. Do you think there's a... Yeah, totally. Do you think there's a a positive growth to a a collective culture, you know, self-destructing? You know, and again, and it's tough for me to sort of make that level of a call of like what the the true inherent value of self-destruction is. I was more trying to observe it as the reality that exists, you know, as, as, mm. you know, you sort of, I think I mentioned another article where you sort of have this like nine to five culture where everyone sort of feels like trapped in sort of the gears of this system that, you know, as we try and liberate from, you know, Friday hits at five o'clock and everyone just wants to get fucking obliterated on, you know, drugs and alcohol. And it's sort of, it's a culture that we've created by virtue of, um, you know, these sort of like minor forms of psychic oppression, sort of doing these things that we feel like we get in these ruts. And I think that, you know, when we're looking at sort of like diet forms of self-destruction, like, you know, little things like smoking cigarettes, like everyone knows smoking cigarettes kills you, but we still do it. Why? Because we can. And there's a certain freedom in saying, hey, you know what? If I want to destroy my body, I'm going to fucking destroy my body on my own terms. And there's something that's, I think, empowering about that whether or not there's any merit in that, I think it comes down to a survival mechanism. And again, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, you know, I'm just a guy who likes to read and has my own little, like, you know, theories about things. But I think that it, it can be empowering, and I think it can be empowering at a level that helps us survive. Because otherwise, you know, people fucking go insane working their nine-to-fives for 40 years, you know? And I think that, um, you know, feeling... You know, it, it, it's a, a lot of people taste zero level of control in their life. You know what I mean? Whether it's like they feel like they're controlled by other aspects of their life. And, you know, I feel like self-destruction gives us a little bit of control over, you know, the autonomy of ourselves, you know, which is, it's a weird thing, you know? No, I, I see where you're getting though. But like the recklessness of not knowing that's what's exciting when you say nine to five, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, during that. So totally. You might come out of it with a, an amazing day or an, 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 a, an a huge amount of shame or guilt. But either way, it's going to be exciting, right? And there's going to be a lesson. Yeah, I mean, that's why people are like, you know, uh, you know, a lot of great stories involved. So we started drinking. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's a certain amount of adventure that comes with sort of reckless behavior um, that I think is also inherent towards, like, the rock and roll spirit, you know? Like, you know, if there's one thing you notice when you're in a band, people love shoving drinks down your throat. You know what I mean? Like, oh, let me get you a drink, or here, you know, I got some Coke, let's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, people like partying with people in bands because they sort of, they, you know, embody, I think, a lot of the spirit that people look up to, which is that sort of innate freedom and that ability just to kind of like, you know, party your ass off and not give a fuck about anything, which, you know, it's not always true, but, you know, at least that's what rock and roll, I think, represents to a lot of people, you know? Yeah, that's true. Now, a lot of people may or may not know, but you do hold two degrees in political science, and you have a minor in economics, I believe? I do, yeah, yeah. I went to school in Rome, actually, and studied political science, um, which, you know, I don't really do anything with, aside from, uh, you know, get to talk on podcasts every once in a while. But no, I mean, that was, that was, that was, it was a passion of mine. It was something, I, I was just one of people really like learning how the world works, and 
for me, poli sci was a way to sort of uh, get somewhat of a handle on that, um, especially being an American living in Europe at the time during the Bush administration. I kind of felt like I had two strikes against me already um, because Americans weren't so popular in Europe at the time. And I just felt like I needed to sort of um, educate myself beyond what felt like, you know, especially at international university, everyone was just like, oh, he's an American, he's an idiot. You know? um, from a geographical standpoint, I think that's what I... I was like, I just wanted to learn geography really well. I wanted to learn like where every country on the map was when I was younger, and you know, it kind of turned into, you know, me deciding to to go down that path that was essentially getting poli sci degrees, which, you know, I had no intention of going to like law school or anything like that after, or you know, uh, becoming a paralegal or whatever the hell people do with poli sci degrees, or you know, becoming some sort of talking head. But I do think it enriches the sort of um, the artistic narrative to a certain extent fills it with a little bit more density to be able to put a little bit more of that understanding and thought into what you create. Yeah. But I also feel like I always tell people when they, they decide to pursue an education or college, like you decided to do something, you started it and you finished it. And that in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways is totally that. And just like, you know, and like at the end of the day, like a liberal arts degree, it's not really preparing for anything specific in this world. Um, but what it is teaching you is the discipline of starting and finishing something. And I think that there is merit in that. So mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what you study. It's more about how you apply yourself to it. Um, you know, I don't think any one degree is going to particularly like, you know, you know, maybe if you go to a trade school and like you learn how to, you know, install, uh, air conditioning, like, yeah, sure. That's going to be what you do. But like, you know, liberal arts degrees are sort of, a classically amorphic in the, in, in the respect that they're not going to prepare you for a job that exists in the world when you get out. So, yeah, you can apply to anything. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, in your studies, though, because it was an international thing, and you said it was during the Bush administration you got your degrees. I feel yeah. like these days, because um, I grew up during that time as well, that the Bush administration gets kind of a huge pass because of what we're dealing right right now. But I yeah. also feel that's not fair because they're really, really bad. I don't think I, – I, you know – I don't want to get too caught up into the quagmire of what is the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that, that I don't think Trump is nearly as bad as the president as Bush was. Nope. And the, the sort of psychic scars that it's left on this country in terms of the geopolitical insanity that occurred at that point in time. Like we are the world that shapes more of the world that we live in today than, you know, a guy who, you know, uh, basically is, become like the highest form of infotainment that people are obviously going to be polarized by. But, you know, I always said that the president is nothing more than the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. It's like, it's, it's, it's oftentimes a distraction from what's really happening. Um, but it's, it's a matter of, I think that, I think Trump is so egoic that it's like, it's not a distraction from what's really happened. It's just like, he is the show and he's distracted even the military industrial complex from what it should be doing. So I think Trump in many ways is a, is a, is a fairly inert president um, comparatively to the, the sort of, you know, geopolitical factors that, that the Bush administration had on, on this, on the globe. And you know? so, you know, I by no means support anything Trump has done, but I, I certainly think that when people like to compare the two is like, Oh man, this makes me miss George W. And you're like, no, it doesn't. I think that administration was, was you know, 10 times more toxic in terms of its impact on the world. 
Exactly. And I think, and I, and I see that more and more what you just said, people would compare the two and I'm like, Oh wow. Like there is no yeah. comparison to what Bush did to like, yeah, if you were Bush living. Bush so much more blood on his hands. Even so Obama much. had more blood on his yeah. hands than I think than Trump. And you know, Trump obviously is a terrible politician and he has no ability to lie like politicians previously, which I think some people are enamored with, but I do think as a symbolic leader, I think that he's really, really set back with his, the hegemonic sort of positioning of our country, um, you know, and at the end of the day, like, you know, for for American people, it does, it's advantageous to, to sort of maintain uh, a strong international public opinion, you know, um, and I think that, I think Trump's done a terrible job of that, um, and I think that, you know, uh, I think we're also going to see the effects of the Trump administration um, and administrations to come, because I also do think that's sort of the way things carry over in presidencies, where in many ways sort of like decades, like we don't really understand what happens until it happened. Um, so it's like we don't really fully get to grasp, you know, what happened during the Trump administration until the next administration. Um, and that's sort of the way American politics work with, like you have some guy who comes in and undoes what the guy previously did. And then the new guy comes in and he undoes what he does. And it's like, it's like, uh, you know, writers of a television series that just need to keep changing the protagonist and the antagonist in order to maintain a fucking television series. Because otherwise, they're not going to have anything to write about. So it's like, the whole thing will continue to ping pong forever, and that's just how it works, you know. Um, which, it, it's just constantly repeating itself if you study history and you look at the slogans, you know. It's like, Make America Great Again wasn't even Trump's slogan. That's a rehash, you know, so... It's nothing new, you know. We can always learn from history in terms of, you know, what we're dealing with currently. And I think that, you know, I think that, you know, if, if democracy is like love, we finally had our heart broken a little bit on this country, which I think is a good thing because you don't really know how to love until you have your heart broken. And I think that you're going to get a lot more civic engagement from people um, who now feel the need to figure out their own vote, which doesn't necessarily fix anything. But I do think that, you know, and I think that people are, are engaged on a very superficial level, which is also a sort of danger of democracy. Um, but I think it's interesting, you know. I think that you're getting a different period of time than we've had previously. You know, I think that when you had eight years of centrist sort of politics, you get a lot of pacification, which was, you know, people didn't fucking think about a damn thing when we had Obama. And we thought we were in the, you know, people were like, hey, you know, we're sailing off into the sunset. we got a black president. Everything's fixed. We can the future. You know, but I don't think Obama was that great of a president either. And there was a lot of terrible things going on during that time, but no one fucking gave a shit about it because centrist politics pacified. Uh, whereas, you know, more far right or far left politics tend to engage people because they feel like it's going to have an impact. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a fucking mess no matter how you look at it. But what you can't say is that these aren't interesting times. So, you know. Absolutely. And that's that's something that you put out there is that political theater has always been something that we as a culture and I think across the world has been engaging for us. We love watching it, like you said. And it is that. It is political theater. It is like a TV show. Absolutely. But it's the, closer towards the Attitude Era of WWF yes. right now than it is towards anything that we've ever seen. And it's crazy. That, that's a perfect example. Um, but the celebrity aspect of politics, I feel, wasn't always as prominent. I feel it happened during the Obama reign. And now the celebrity aspect of, like, the, yeah. the Trump thing, I feel like that's the big change to the political Yeah, world. I think politics largely before, before um, 
before Obama were boring, but mm-hmm. Obama came in with like this incredibly cutting edge marketing campaign that helped him get elected, and that involved him going on SNL. And yep. I mean, you can watch that guy's, uh, you know, uh, what the hell is it called? That stupid dinner that the, the press the press con the press dinner that they do. And like Obama's slaying the dude's hilarious. He, he's like he's like you know one of the best stand up comics I've ever seen. The guy's phenomenally entertaining, you know, as a figurehead, and it's like you saw this sort of new era of infotainment getting ushered in with him that we hadn't really seen before, which in many ways, you know, it did pave the way for a reality TV star uh, president because it sort of became okay to see your president, you know, as this sort of like guy who would go on SNL and be funny or a guy who would be, you know, uh, doing things that, you know, he'd be on a, you know, People that go on like Zach Galifianakis between two ferns, like things that presidents never did before, you know, that I think that really plot across those lines and really blurred those lines between what is information and entertainment. And that's why I do think that we live in the sort of era of infotainment, not to mention the, you know, American news cycle exists on every 30 seconds, which is like, we're just turning over new levels of stories that the news shouldn't be that way. The news shouldn't be, you know, what's our ratings? You know, which is just insane. So just be trying to deliver information. But, you know, you could turn on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or any major news network, and it's essentially just fire for effect at this point. You know, it's like uh, alarmist rhetoric and, you know, people just trying to get people to tune in on any level at all. It's like, it's uh, you know, yeah. the clickbait era, you know. Natural Born Killers, the whole movie that was trying to say this is the future if we let the media be for profit. And the fact that I, I saw that when I was a kid and I was like, there's no way. And then now I know yeah. I live in that time. That that was almost know. like, a, Crazy. you know, I'm like that movie. Almost prophetic. Yeah, yeah, it's insane to me. And that's that's true. But I always go to, I don't blame individuals or people, but the consumer. We're consumers, me and you. We, we do it. The consumer, it's the avenue for all things. Let it be art. And, and, and that's the nature of capitalism, yeah. you know, that it, it's going to be all pervasive and it will continue to sort of grow and push every form of technology. And, you know, it's like that's just the way this country works and that's the way the world works. And, you know, it, you can't. it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a world without capitalism. You know, and that's sort of a lot of what we sort of centered some of the concepts on this record about, which is things like a, a, this sort of political heresy of accelerationism, where, you know, everything is accelerating by virtue of capital, um, especially with technology, and that technology in and of itself being propelled by capitalism will sort of destroy capitalism. Um, you know, if you look at sort of these theory fictions of like, you know, in the next 25 years, how many jobs are going to be replaced by automation? which is essentially bottom-line economics. You know, companies say, hey, well, why would it pay all these grocery clerks if we can just make automatic checkout counters? But that's reducing jobs, you know. Um, and you're going to see that across the board. Where self-driving cars, you're going to have this whole sort of, uh, you know, Uber market replaced. And that's that's supplementing a lot of people's income. So it's like you're going to have so many – how many dish-figure jobs are going to be replaced in the next 25 years through automation? A tremendous amount. And that's going to be by virtue of capitalism. But what's going to happen – when people can't afford to buy the Coca-Cola that is, you know, now completely automated the line and everything. It's like, cause people still need that class still needs people to buy products. So you're going to have some sort of like crazy universal basic wage situation that is so counterintuitive to capitalism. But in order to, to maintain capitalism, 
it's going to have to be. So it's like you it, it realize that the quagmire that's going to come in the next 25 years, and it's going to be wild, you know. Um, there's not a lot of answers for that type of thing, you know. But I do think that with more and more jobs being replaced by automation, I do think that you're going to see, you know, more waves of populism sweeping the country because that type of rhetoric speaks to people who are disenfranchised in the same way they say, hey, you know, a Mexican's taking your job. But the difference is that's going to be a robot in 25 years. Um, and you're going to get that same level of rhetoric being pushed, and you're going to have more populism as a result of that. So I think, you know, we've got a, we've got a, a challenging next 25 years ahead of us. You know? I, I, I love what you just said because that's exactly what I kind of see too is that by taking away the human element of all these things and letting us as people who like to not maybe connect or have to deal with other people just deal with a robot – you're going to, yeah. sex is going to change. Everything's going to change. Everything. A whole Every, cultural, because yeah. it's easier. Like, yeah. I don't want to sound like a creep, but yes, masturbating is going to be easier than getting laid. It's one of those it's things. True. Yeah, it's, it's true. Fact. And you're yeah. going to have so much more escapism because the world's going to be getting so dark outside that I think that people are going to be sort of, you know, introverting through things like that, through interfacing more with machines, virtual experiences, through video games, through all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's where I, I'm scared with technology because I always felt, and I think I said this before on a show, that technology, like we as humans, it was always a little bit ahead of us and we can always catch up to it, but now it's so far ahead of us that we as humans, we can't catch yeah. up to it. We have to let it. No, and, 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 and sort of like, you know, an acceleration of philosophy basically goes back to saying, like, you know, you, no one understands the issue until the issue's already happened. And mm. so at that point, something else is already happening. So we're like, we can't technically keep up with the state of where things are with technology because, you know, we can create them, but we don't understand the impact that's creating. Like, cool, Instagram, that's awesome, that happened, someone had this idea, but do they understand how that's going to affect the world by creating a sort of a, you know, prosthetic digital nervous system that connects us all? No, that's going to be fucking crazy, and we're going to see what happens, and we're not going to be able to figure out what happens until things already started happening. So we don't get to test these things on you know a collective consciousness scale but we get to just have to it just plays out and we, we sort of try and keep up with it and we try and understand it and you know unfortunately the people that are usually on the cutting edge of trying to understand it are people who work in marketing and people who are trying to further exploit it as opposed to someone who's like approaching with any level of sort of beneficent understanding of how it's going to affect the collective consciousness so yeah we learned in a precarious times i'm not trying to come and sound like some doomsayer but, you know, just try and look at things as they are. Yeah, no, I don't think you are. I think I think it is an intelligent way to see, like, hey, this is where we're heading. Like, when we talk about natural born killers, uh, like I brought up earlier, that was a doomsayer message. But it's like, no, we yeah. got there. We somehow got there. You know, media. Oh, you know? Yeah. So. And, that, oh, and that's another, you know, track one in the record is hyperstition, which yeah. is, a, is sort of another theory that sort of postulates that, like, the things that we imagine are the things that come to pass. Um, especially in pop culture, like, you know, you had, you know, Neuromancer and these sort of, you know, books that are explaining things like cyberspace and what happens? We create cyberspace. Um, you know, we have all this dystopian vision in, in Hollywood, all these dystopian video games, all this stuff. So what's going to happen? We're going to end up in the dystopian future. Like it feels like we're in the one that, you know, was written by hackneyed writers right now, you know? So it's like, there's very few utopian visions that are, are sort of, a, being propelled into pop culture that I can, I can't even think of one. I think maybe the only one I could think of, which sort of died out a while ago. I think, I think Star Trek was sort of a utopian future in many ways. 
So I think that, like, you know, that stuff is passed. There was no, like, totalitarian regime in Star Trek, you know? These were people that were out just sort of, you know, exploring the universe and, you know, having sort of, like, uh, these sort of, like, micro-challenges of, of, of episodic sort of uh, entertainment. But, you know, everything sort of felt fairly utopian at that point in time. It was like the Star Wars where you're dealing with a totalitarian intergalactic regime or, you know, uh, things like Lord of the Rings where it's, like, very much so uh, applicable to what's happening. And, you know, I think that we, in many ways, have to sort of reframe and create some sort of, like, you know, utopian vision if we're going to be able to achieve anything like that, which I, I don't think you know, doesn't seem like there's any marketability to that. It doesn't seem like people want to hear that. I, I completely agree. Did you, by chance, see that documentary they did on Mr. Rogers, that Would You Be My Neighbor? I did. I did. I, I loved it. I, I grew up on Mr. Rogers, and uh, I really enjoyed watching that. Wasn't it a fantastic... That's a perfect example yeah. of, uh, of, this, of this person who, who cared deeply and wanted to kind of, you know, uh, take this very formative experience of growing up and, and sort of invite people into, you know, he saw the medium of television, which you could apply to say what is the internet now, you know, like it was a, a certain level of information age that was being disseminated on a wide level. And he saw that as an opportunity to do some good with it um, and, and, and help sort of mold young minds with it in a, in a really sort of beneficent way, which is really beautiful. But I think that, you know, we're very far from that now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, look, and I thought the same thing. I thought there was this amazing story about this amazing guy. And I remember them showing clips of like, when even like Superman was happening, like the movie and him being this is going to hurt culture, because yeah. we're not going to want to be human anymore. We're going to want to be more. And I was like, what a concept. Like, I've never knew life where I didn't want to be more than human. No, no I know? mean, like, if, there was, if, there, if there was ever, like, the closest thing to, like, a Jesus Christ in my mind, like, it's a Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that guy, like, I was, it, it was it was extremely profound, the things that you were saying, and, and, and almost prophetic, you know, like we're talking about. But, you know, yeah. yeah. R.I.P. Fred Rogers. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody check out that film if you haven't. I believe it's called uh, Would You Be My Neighbor. The one song I did want to talk about, like I said, I'm sorry, I, I, we didn't, I haven't talked too much about the record right now, but Meta War, it's a fantastic That's record. Okay. It's been fantastic. But the one song that I wanted to uh, ask you about was there's a track called Born Less on there. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a rundown of the message that you uh, kind of were putting out for this track? Yeah, Born Less was sort of um, you know, a, a weird sort of abstract tune that was sort of... Um, you know, this idea that, you know, we're sort of born into these social contracts of, okay, you're from this country and you're born into these, like, you know, lines in the sand and you have these rules that are applied to you. And to me, it was sort of something that was like uh, trying to speak towards the natural law of man and that you're bornless and you're, you're void of territory and that, you know, um, you're essentially this uh, a formless entity encased in a body. So there was, you know, there was, there was some psycho spiritual things going on with that song um, that, to me, just felt it just felt timely. Um, you know, especially with various immigration policies and the sort of irony that I feel like we're here. We are drawing all these lines in the sand, but yet, you know, in the next fifty years, when the tide rises, all those lines in the sand are going to be really hard to sort of monitor. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I, I wanted to sort of speak toward the, you know, what is governance of, of natural law you know? yeah no I, I think it's a, a great message and a great song and I feel that like I said it just stuck with me when I was listening to the record 
um, on repeat there for a minute. But and then just to go back to your political studies, because you do kind of have an international mindset, just because you went to school and you did yeah. a little bit about it. what government from your studies internationally do you feel is the least corrupt and how do they how does that affect them on a global scale i don't think there's an as a, as a, as a least corrupt government i think all forms of government and you know like power in general is going to corrupt and i think that's where you know the more you learn about politics it was sort of like uh you know i have political science teachers tell me like when you start this program you're going to be sort of a you know a bleeding heart liberal um, and if you don't you have no heart and when you finish this program you're going to be more of a conservative, and if you don't, you have a brain. Um, and I think that that's sort of the nature of learning that politics is, you know, from from a, a you know a face value, you look at things as sort of, um, you know, with your heart, and you say, oh, well, you know, you don't fully understand the issues. And then I think, you know, the more you understand, the more you start to understand about human nature, and not to say that I want to have this sort of like, you know, Hobbesian view of human nature, but I do think that, you know, humanity. In, in human nature is, is naturally corrupted by power. Um, and I think that, you know, when people in power, you know, they might start even with a good, you know, a good intention, but I think eventually I do think that with some very rough decision-making that comes with being in power, I think people oftentimes um, have to sort of make inherently challenging decisions that oftentimes might corrupt their beneficence, you know, the, the initial beneficence that they started with. Uh, so I don't have a specific government that I can point to and say, hey, these guys figured it out. But I, I agree with what you said. I think that's a human thing when power is in play. Like if you if you work hard and you gain power and there's all these things that are trying to take it away from you, you get in a survival mode. And when you're in survival yeah. mode, your morals are going to be tested, I think. Is that fair, you think? Uh, absolutely. You know, and I think you can see that in basic forms of entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch any movie with you know, the end of the world comes into place, and it's like there's oftentimes very difficult decisions you know, that, that have to be made in terms of, you know, essentially, like, what is my morality here? Or, you know, do I have to kill a few people to save more people? And, you know, you look at things like uh, the Avengers, you know, where it's like the bad guy is Thanos. But what he's trying to do is, in his mind, beneficent, you know? So it's like isn't it, not everything is so cut and dry. You know, it's like we can't just say, hey, you know, these guys are shooting some Palestinian leaders and, you know, the Bush administration needs warrants for this, blah, blah, blah. It's like, there's obviously, you know, there's greed at the core of these things, but I think there's also, when you look at something like a new world order that was formed, the new world order was formed in order to prevent a World War III. That was really the major goal. Obviously, these things are going to mutate along the way, and the people that place in power will eventually corrupt, and people say, hey, well, maybe I can get some money off those oil contracts, et cetera, and, you know, preserve the generational wealth, because I've seen, you know, the reports from the CIA that said this country could fall apart at any time, and I want to make sure that my tribe is worked out for. It's like, yeah, these things are challenging for people, you know? It's, uh, it's not it's not black and white by any means. Human uh, yeah. experience is a zillion shades of gray. Absolutely. Now, I really like that you brought up the Thanos thing because there are these villains that get more attention than the the bad guys because of their philosophy, and that yeah. there's a strength to to managing hate or anything that's really ugly that we see or evil. There's a strength to seeing someone be able to manage that. That's what the the Heath Ledger, Ledger Joker did for a lot of people. Absolutely. That time. You know, you're yeah. like, look at him doing that. That's insane. Yeah, the Joker and the Joker was a character that a lot of people could really resonate with mm-hmm. in what was even probably even more so than a Batman who's you know a, a white collar superhero billionaire 
you know, goes out on a self-righteous mission as opposed to the sort of like, you know, agent of chaos who was formed by a fucked up city who, as a response to a fucked up city, was trying to do what he felt like was right, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's... It's interesting. Yeah, we could go on for hours about this stuff. Sure. Very true, man. Uh, one last question I just wanted to bring up. I want to talk about, because uh, your guys' success has been great. I really like what's happening with the band. I love the new record, guys. I want to tell you one more time. Metawar is coming out July 5th. But you rang in the New Year's, and I'm jealous here. Uh, you, you got to perform with Ramstein in Mexico. Now, mm-hmm. where, where does this New Year's land in your life of New Year's celebrations? I mean, it's pretty obvious. It was probably like the best New Year's Ever. experience of my life. I'm not a big New Year's guy. Like I'm one of those people. Like I'll stay in and hang out with some people that I want to spend some time with. But you know, the opportunity to go down uh, to Mexico and you know, I'm a huge Rammstein fan. So like, just to go to that sh- those two shows alone would have been you know an amazing experience. Let alone you know get to bring you know the rest of my band, or great friends, my girlfriend, and all that stuff, and just go and party down in Mexico with, with the guys from Ramstein who are just the absolute best. Those guys are so, like, salt of the earth, like, zero egos, like, you know, they're obviously the largest of my fan, but they are the nicest guys ever, and they love to party, so we just had so much fun. And everything about it was, like, just the most surreal experience you could have imagined. Also, I'd like to say that the, the Mexican people and the crowd were just insane. Like, everything about it just felt like a perfect storm, whereas, like, you know, maybe they're, uh, they're like, it's almost like they're trapped in like the golden era of metal where like metal feels super important, you know, like mm-hmm. they're like maybe 10 years behind or something like that where metal is still everything. Um, uh, it was just awesome. Yeah, dude, I, I can, I can imagine. And their, and their show was, uh, they, they did a lot of extra stuff, right? With the, with the, the fire and all that stuff. It was like, they, they, I, they had all sorts of stuff pulled out. They did like, you know, they brought a mariachi band during the countdown that they played with. Um, and it was just so cool. Like, nice. you know, there was a lot of tequila songs. For that. <laughs> did they film it for like a DVD later? Do you, do you have, do you know? I don't know if they filmed it. We filmed a bunch of it and did like a little recap video of our own, but I'm not sure if they did any, any particular, uh, you know, one of those like Rammstein recap video things. Nice, dude. Cool. So uh, with that, Alexis, dude, I just want to thank you, man, so much. I want to tell everybody one more time, make sure you pick up 3T's new record, Meta War. It's coming out July 5th, dude. Uh, had a great time finally getting to talk to you, man. And I just want to... Yeah, man, this was great. I really enjoyed chatting.
Seattle Sucks podcast. Guys, first song you heard, both songs are off the record, Meta War. It is coming out this Friday. That is July 5th. So make sure you guys are pre-ordering that record if you haven't. It's so worth your fucking time. First song you heard is Exit 
as we mentioned, make sure if you have a strong stomach to check that video out. If not, don't. <laughs> Flat out. Dude, it's, it's tough to get through, but that's the first song. Second song you guys heard is Affluenza, both off the record Meta War. Make sure you guys pre-order it, as I mentioned. With that, I want to thank everybody one more time for all the five-star reviews we are getting on the good old iTunes, uh, the emails we're getting. You guys are really, really, really cool, man. I can't tell you how much it means to us that you interact with us, you talk to us, you ask us questions. It's, it's, it's really cool just to have that conversation. So email us anytime, rise to offend at gmail.com. And with that, guys, until next week, the Metal Sucks Podcast is signing off. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.